Laura, I'm not criticizing you. I'm trying to put you in touch with your anger. The plane crash, losing your parents while you survived, the fact that you're blind and others aren't. There's a pool of anger inside of you, and you have to let it go. You know, what's funny right now, if you went on to like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or any of those things or any fan sites, I think what you'll see is a lot of uh, horror movie fans saying, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night really rocks, it's really cool, except there's this one called Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 that's absolutely unwatchable. Because <laughs> we made an art film out of a slasher film and we didn't conform to any of the rules. We just made our own movie. So if you're looking for a Monty Hellman film, it's a good one. If you're looking for a good Silent Night, Deadly Night movie, it's probably a pretty bad one. <laughs> I just want to be normal. Laura. No one is normal. I first met Monty Hellman uh, when I was uh, on my way to Cal Arts uh, to study film, critical studies. And um, I saw him on TV doing an interview promotional uh, piece for Tulane Blacktop uh, with Warren Oates. I knew nothing about anything except two things. I knew that Warren Oates was cool from watching him on TV. And the clip they showed of Monty's film looked different than anything I'd ever seen. It looked like real life and uh, something struck me. And so I wrote him a fan letter and uh, sent him some of my writing, which at that time was probably uh, uh, gibberish poetry. In any event, he called me up and said, hey, you, you, your writing is really interesting. Uh, you should come over and meet uh, me and my wife or girlfriend and uh, her brother and come on over. So I got in my car and drove from my steel town outside of Los Angeles and uh, went to Mulholland Drive, famously enough, and met Monty Hellman. And that was the beginning of 50 years of uh, friendship, partnership. Uh, I consider him like a father figure and a mentor and a pal. We worked together on Cockfighter uh, in 74, where I was a, uh, just a production assistant. But I was a production assistant who knew the director, and I got invited into story conferences and hung out with Warren Oates, who was in the movie. And um, I uh, did not get on with the next film. I started my own recording business in the 70s. Uh, but we got back together in the 80s for Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Hey, Ricky. Want a drink? What's that? Vegetables don't drink? Great, pal. More for me. Cheers. Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 came through a very close friend of ours, uh, Arthur Gorson, who was a producer and a fellow who came from the music industry in New York, the folk music scene. And uh, he's the one who brought us into uh, Ronna Wallace and Richard Gladstein and the people at Live Home Entertainment who had this 
opportunity to do the third uh, in a series of Santa Claus slasher movies. It's about as disreputable a gig as uh, any director would ever be offered. But you have to remember, uh, the whole story of Monty Hellman is that he came out of disreputable horror. He, his first movie was something called Beast from Haunted Cave. Uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the Roger Corman school of, uh, you know, slasher and horror and, and uh, B-movie stuff. So he wasn't uh, quite above, you know, doing some tawdry things. Um, in 1988, uh, you know, Monty was always struggling to make a living. So he was always taking jobs that were handed to him. He never really uh, approached any of these opportunities with uh, enthusiasm. He kind of had to be dragged into making them and then he just gave it everything he had and he invested his heart and soul in making the best movie he could. And the funny thing about Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, better watch out, the full title, is that Monty brought me in to make it better. He brought me in to do a, kind of a rewrite of the script or touch up, whatever. And um, when the movie was done, Monty was so proud of it. He was just delighted with it. He was very, very happy. And uh, he had fun doing it. And he got paid decently. And, uh, you know, Monty was struggling from the time he was banished from the studio world in 71. The rest of his life, he was struggling uh, to make a living. So when a job came through the door, even if he had reservations about it, he was kind of going to be worn down by the necessities of life. Then he approached it as if it were Beckett or Shakespeare or Pinter or Mamet. You know, he, he approached it as if it was the greatest project in the world. And when it was all done, Monty was just really, really proud of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. And he loved it. He, had didn't, he never felt it was disreputable. He felt it was one of his best films. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Dad. Like Candy Cane, little girl. <laughs> Monty, you know, didn't love the screenplay. In, ge in general, Monty didn't love screenplays. And, and then when they didn't work for him, he loved them less. And so he didn't really have much enthusiasm about this. He felt it was really flat and it was one-dimensional. I don't know, to tell you the truth, I don't know how much he worked uh, with the screenwriter who, who wrote this, who was hired by Arthur Gorson to write it. Um, I don't know how much input Monty had to try to make it better, but I do know at the end of that process, he called me and said, Steve, read this thing. I just, you know, it's just not there. Just do something, right? So I read it. I remember the conversation. This is funny because now we're talking about, you know, uh, 30 plus years ago. And I said, Monty, there's nothing I can do to make this movie better. The only thing I can do is make it funnier. And he said, yes, <laughs> that's it. Just make it funnier. So I like to say, if there's a laugh in this movie, I probably wrote it. You're not blowing smoke up my ass, are you, Doc? That sounds like an enterprise of great pith and moment, which I would just assume decline. Just ask. There's banter uh, between the cop, played by Robert Culp, the doctor, played by Richard Beamer, from uh, Robert Culp from I Spy, and other things. 
and uh, Richard Beamer from West Side Story, two guys who at that point in life needed a gig, and and so they're the cop and the and the mad doctor, and I wrote their repartee. Uh, they're in a car and they're talking about cell phones, which were quite new at that time, and there's a bunch of uh, just funny non sequitur stuff. I feel like it sort of predates Tarantino and his strange burger repartee between people. I, I feel like there's some lineage, it's probably all in my mind, but it definitely, I was first <laughs> and he was second. You got a stick? A what? Well, if you drive a stick shift, you need the hands-free option. That, that's a must. So we made it funnier and, uh, you know, I, I punched in a lot of gags and I, I found a joke that um, I think this is my, my claim to fame on this movie. Um, I punched in a joke that when Cahiers de Cinema, the distinguished French uh, auteurist magazine, wrote about the movie, uh, the entire article revolved around the joke that I put in the, the movie because they found that joke was incredibly significant and incredibly pertinent to understanding the meaning, if there is one, of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. I will tell you the joke very quickly. What do you call it when you get deja vu twice? A reoccurring extrasensory phenomenon. Uh, stupid. So, Bill Crone, who wrote about the movie for Kaye, said this is the key to the whole you know, Monty Hellman approach to doing a sequel. Hollywood is addicted to doing sequels. Sequelitis, this is 1988. He was already talking about the curse of, of you know, everything has a sequel. It's gotten a hundred times worse. Uh, but uh, Deja Vu Twice became a very important uh, aspect of this movie for the French uh, uh, critics. So it's kind of funny. Um, yeah, so if there's a gag in the movie, if there's funny repartee, if there's funny dialogue, if there's, you know, strange funny asides, um, or any, uh, I think, verbal wit in the movie, it's probably somewhere that I just tinkered around the edge and, and did a little something and just added a little spice here and there. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't terribly significant in terms of structurally changing things. I think Monty and the screenwriter might have worked out some of the stuff with Bill Mosley, and who's the killer, and uh, you know the main girl, and how all this stuff works. But I just went in and tried to find places to have a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor, and uh, and give the characters some extra little uh, bits and pieces. You know, not only did Monty and I, I don't know who looked at anything from the other Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. I don't know if Arthur Gorson ever looked at them. I don't know if the screenwriter did. I know I sure as hell didn't, because to this day I haven't. <laughs> I've never seen any Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. And, uh, you know, we treated this like Beauty and the Beast. You know, we treated it like we're making a Monty Hellman auteur film. So we just sort of ignored all of the other things because we could. Um, I had another hand in the movie. I, I 
help secure the locations out in Piru, north of LA. And uh, so I helped put together the place where we uh, filmed the whole thing. Um, but um, in terms of having any idea what Silent Night, Deadly Night is all about, uh, or the tradition, or what the conventions are, or anything, to this day, I would flunk any test you asked me about it. Uh, I didn't know at the time who Bill Mosley was, who's sort of a name in uh, horror films, and a good guy. And uh, of course, Laura Herring went on and worked for David Lynch. Um, you know, there were people like that in our world, uh, sort of batting around the, um, the independent world. Can you hear me, Ricky? You find her yet? Your soul still searching? You know, my memory of, uh, of the actors on, uh, on Silent Night are probably more attuned to the guys that I wrote for, uh, Beamer and Robert Culp. I had interviewed Robert Culp uh, because he made a little movie that he directed called Hickey and Boggs with Bill Cosby. Uh, they were both famous from uh, uh, I Spy TV show from the 60s. And Culp was a great character. He had worked with Peck and Paw, who was my big, you know, filmmaking hero. And so it was fun to be around Culp and get to know him. His son was in our movie, Iguana. And so there was two Culps in two Monty Hellman movies in two years. So I remember that. Want to see why I hate Christmas? Wife makes me worried every year. Would you wear a porqueria like that? Then again, you could use a little brightening up. Monty liked working with characters. He didn't like actors. He didn't like acting. He wanted, he wanted some truth to happen in, in front of the camera. He just wanted truth to be, you know, to be presented. He wanted to be a uh, a man who delivered truth to people to experience it on some primal unconscious level. She's not here. You sure? She always hears the car. She always comes out on the porch to wait for us. I forgot to pick up some butter. Something's not right. Since I helped secure the primary locations in Piru, I have to take the credit and the blame for everything that happened there. It was a very low budget movie. It was very difficult. Um, the problem with Piru was it was a very good friend of mine. It was their ranch, and Orange Ranch, oranges and um, Citrus Ranch. And uh, they were very troubled. They're a very troubled person, and they were very difficult. So that was unusual in the sense that uh, there was just a personality problem there that the primary person they were dealing with wasn't well, you know. And so that created problems. Otherwise, it was a super low-budget movie, and um, you know all the difficulties that ensue. Um, but you know, I think that. Uh, Arthur and Monty and Lori Post, the production person, production uh, art director. Um, Monty and his team, and Joseph Savit, the amazing cinematographer, they started working around that time together, Monty and, and Joseph. They were very clever in finding a location for the hospital. They're very clever in how to put together, you know, on a limited budget, the effects and the uh, special effects makeup and all that stuff. Oh. 
Monty was very proud of this movie, and you can go back and find the interviews where people thought he was a little bit cracked, you know? Like, how can he be so proud of such a disreputable thing? You know, is he just, you know, is, is he just lying, or is he a fool, or whatever? I'm telling you, he was very proud of his work. Um, Monty also viewed the work of the director in a very uh, utilitarian way. He felt like, you know, he knew what the job was, and so he was proud of the job he had done, just as he would look at Peckinpah or Don Siegel and he could see what they did as directors and point out why they were good directors or many of the famous celebrated directors he thought were crap. You know, he just said they're bad directors. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't know where to put the camera. They don't know how to work with actors. They have no ima visual imagination or whatever it was that was uh, his you know, uh, kind of hierarchy of how you do the job. He lived up to his own expectations of how to do the job on this. So he was very proud of what he'd done. You know, of course, if you make a movie called Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, uh, and you have any expectations for reviews, you must be hallucinating. There was never going to be anything good critically to ever happen for this movie. And nothing critically good ever happened for this movie except Calle de Cinema thought it was fantastic. And uh, so, you know, there are a few Monty Hellman fans, uh, Brad Stevens here in the UK, um, you know, a few diehard fans who know the movie and like it and appreciate it. And it always shows up in retrospectives of Monty's work. But of course, uh, it is not on the critical radar at all. I'm not even sure it, it needs to be or should be. And for me personally, if I look at Monty's filmography, it's fairly far down. Um, I have, you know, the films that I like, um, and it's not in the top five. Um, I can't judge whether it's good or bad. It's just such an odd, funny, you know, it's an odd bird, you know. I would say Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 happened at a moment in the 80s uh, when my friend was starving and nobody wanted to hire him. And a friend called up, a friend named Arthur, and said, I've got food for you. You know, let's go, let's go do this. You have to do this work. It made life better for Monty. It helped Monty get through a tough patch. And uh, so it's almost like you remember it more, uh, you remember more the acts of friendship uh, than you remember the movie. Monty said, this is my Beauty and the Beast. And if people wanna come to it, and they wanna come with a sense of humor and a sense of adventure that a very bright man who once lived named Monty Hellman took this terrible, disreputable Santa Claus slasher genre and invested it with all the dignity and passion and love and expertise. He poured his soul into a Santa Claus slasher movie and you have a chance to see what the result is. You know, you have a chance to see what happens when a man takes something completely ridiculous, completely seriously and, and you know, what is it? Is it good or bad? Who knows? But it's something to see.
criticizing you. I'm trying to put you in touch with your anger. The plane crash, losing your parents while you survived, the fact that you're blind and others aren't. There's a pool of anger inside of you, and you have to let it go. You know, what's funny right now, if you went on to like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or any of those things or any fan sites, I think what you'll see is a lot of uh, horror movie fans saying, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night really rocks, it's really cool, except there's this one called Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 that's absolutely unwatchable. Because <laughs> we made an art film out of a slasher film and we didn't conform to any of the rules. We just made our own movie. So if you're looking for a Monty Hellman film, it's a good one. If you're looking for a good Silent Night, Deadly Night movie, it's probably a pretty bad one. <laughs> I just want to be normal. Laura, no one is normal. I first met Monty Hellman uh, when I was uh, on my way to CalArts uh, to study film, critical studies. And um, I saw him on TV doing an interview promotional uh, piece for Tulane Blacktop uh, with Warren Oates. I knew nothing about anything except two things. I knew that Warren Oates was cool from watching him on TV. And the clip they showed of Monty's film looked different than anything I'd ever seen. It looked like real life and uh, something struck me and so I wrote him a fan letter and uh, sent him some of my writing which at that time was probably uh, uh, gibberish poetry. In any event he called me up and said hey you, you, your writing is really interesting uh, you should come over and meet uh, me and my wife or girlfriend and uh, her brother and come on over. So I got in my car and drove from my steel town outside of Los Angeles and uh, went to Mulholland Drive, famously enough, and met Monty Hellman. And that was the beginning of 50 years of uh, friendship, partnership. Uh, I consider him like a father figure and a mentor and a pal. We worked together on Cockfighter uh, in 74, where I was a, uh, just a production assistant. But I was a production assistant who knew the director, and I got invited into story conferences and hung out with Warren Oates, who was in the movie. And um, I uh, did not get on with the next film. I started my own recording business in the 70s. Uh, but we got back together in the 80s for Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Hey, Ricky. Want a drink? What's that? Vegetables don't drink? Great, pal. More for me. Cheers. Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 came through a very close friend of ours, uh, Arthur Gorson, who was a producer and a fellow who came from the music industry in New York, the folk music scene. And uh, he's the one who brought us into uh, Ronna Wallace and Richard Gladstein and the people at Live Home Entertainment who had this opportunity to do 
the third uh, in a series of Santa Claus slasher movies. It's about as disreputable a gig as uh, any director would ever be offered. But you have to remember, uh, the whole story of Monty Hellman is that he came out of disreputable horror. He, his first movie was something called Beast from Haunted Cave. Uh, with uh, you know uh, the Roger Corman school of uh, you know slasher and horror and and uh, B movie stuff, so he wasn't uh, quite above you know doing some tawdry things. Um, in 1988, uh, you know Monty was always struggling to make a living, so he was always taking jobs that were handed to him. He never really. Uh, approached any of these opportunities with uh, enthusiasm. He kind of had to be dragged into making them. And then he just gave it everything he had and he invested his heart and soul in making the best movie he could. And the funny thing about Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out, the full title, is that Monty brought me in to make it better. He brought me in to do a, kind of a rewrite of the script or touch up, whatever. And um, when the movie was done, Monty was so proud of it. He was just delighted with it. He was very, very happy. And uh, he had fun doing it. And he got paid decently. And uh, you know, Monty was struggling from the time he was banished from the studio world in 71. The rest of his life, he was struggling uh, to make a living. So when a job came through the door, even if he had reservations about it, he was kind of going to be worn down by the necessities of life. Then he approached it as if it were Beckett or Shakespeare or Pinter or Mamet. You know, he, he approached it as if it was the greatest project in the world. And when it was all done, Monty was just really, really proud of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. And he loved it. He, had didn't, he never felt it was disreputable. He felt it was one of his best films. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Dad. Like Candy Cane, little girl. <laughs> Monty, you know, didn't love the screenplay. In, ge in general, Monty didn't love screenplays. And, and then when they didn't work for him, he loved them less. And so he didn't really have much enthusiasm about this. He felt it was really flat and it was one-dimensional. I don't know, to tell you the truth, I don't know how much he worked uh, with the screenwriter who, who wrote this, who was hired by Arthur Gorson to write it. Um, I don't know how much input Monty had to try to make it better, but I do know at the end of that process, he called me and said, Steve, read this thing. I just, you know, it's just not there. Just do something, right? So I read it. I remember the conversation. This is funny because now we're talking about, you know, uh, 30 plus years ago. And I said, Monty, there's nothing I can do to make this movie better. The only thing I can do is make it funnier. And he said, yes, <laughs> that's it. Just make it funnier. So I like to say, if there's a laugh in this movie, I probably wrote it. You're not blowing smoke up my ass, are you, Doc? That sounds like an enterprise of great pith and moment, which I would just assume decline. Just ask. There's banter uh, between the cop, played by Robert Culp, the doctor, played by Richard Beamer, from uh, Robert Culp from I Spy and other things, and uh, Richard Beamer from West Side Story. 
two guys who at that point in life needed a gig. And, and so they're the cop and the, and the mad doctor. And I wrote their repartee. Uh, they're in a car and they're talking about cell phones, which were quite new at that time. And there's a bunch of uh, just funny non sequitur stuff. I feel like it sort of predates Tarantino and his strange burger repartee between people. I, I feel like there's some lineage, it's probably all in my mind, but it definitely, I was first <laughs> and he was second. You got a stick? A what? Well, if you drive a stick shift, you need the hands-free option. That, that's a must. So we made it funnier and, uh, you know, I, I punched in a lot of gags and I, I found a joke that um, I think this is my, my claim to fame on this movie. Um, I punched in a joke that when Cahiers de Cinema, the distinguished French uh, auteurist magazine, wrote about the movie, uh, the entire article revolved around the joke that I put in the, the movie because they found that joke was incredibly significant and incredibly pertinent to understanding the meaning, if there is one, of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. I will tell you the joke very quickly. What do you call it when you get deja vu twice? A reoccurring extrasensory phenomenon. Uh, stupid. So Bill Crone, who wrote about the movie for Kaye, said this is the key to the whole you know, Monty Hellman approach to doing a sequel. Hollywood is addicted to doing sequels. Sequelitis, this is 1988. He was already talking about the curse of, of you know, everything has a sequel. It's gotten a hundred times worse. Uh, but uh, Deja Vu Twice became a very important uh, aspect of this movie for the French uh, uh, critics. So it's kind of funny. Um, yeah, so if there's a gag in the movie, if there's funny repartee, if there's funny dialogue, if there's, you know, strange funny asides, um, or any, uh, I think, verbal wit in the movie, it's probably somewhere that I just tinkered around the edge and, and did a little something and just added a little spice here and there. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't terribly significant in terms of structurally changing things. I think Monty and the screenwriter might have worked out some of the stuff with Bill Mosley, and you know, who's the killer, and uh, you know the main girl, and how all this stuff works. But I just went in and tried to find places to have a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor, and uh, and give the characters some extra little uh, bits and pieces. You know, not only did Monty and I, I don't know who looked at anything from the other Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. I don't know if Arthur Gorson ever looked at them. I don't know if the screenwriter did. I know I sure as hell didn't, because to this day I haven't. <laughs> I've never seen any Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. And, uh, you know, we treated this like Beauty and the Beast. You know, we treated it like we're making a Monty Hellman auteur film. So we just sort of ignored all of the other things because we could. Um, I had another hand in the movie. I, I helped secure the locations out in Piru 
north of L.A. And uh, so I helped put together the place where we uh, filmed the whole thing. Um, but um, in terms of having any idea what Silent Night, Deadly Night is all about, uh, or the tradition, or what the conventions are, or anything, to this day, I would flunk any test you asked me about it. Uh, I didn't know at the time who Bill Mosley was, who's sort of a name in uh, horror films, and a good guy. And uh, of course, Laura Herring went on and worked for David Lynch. Um, you know, there were people like that in our world, uh, sort of batting around the, um, the independent world. Can you hear me, Ricky? You find her yet? Your soul still searching? You know, my memory of, uh, of the actors on, uh, on Silent Night are probably more attuned to the guys that I wrote for, uh, Beamer and Robert Culp. I had interviewed Robert Culp uh, because he made a little movie that he directed called Hickey and Boggs with Bill Cosby. Uh, they were both famous from uh, uh, I Spy TV show from the 60s. And Culp was a great character. He had worked with Peck and Paw, who was my big you know, filmmaking hero. And so it was fun to be around Culp and get to know him. His son was in our movie, Iguana. And so there was two Culps and two Monty Hellman movies in two years. So I remember that. Want to see why I hate Christmas? Wife makes me worried every year. Would you wear a porqueria like that? Then again, you could use a little brightening up. Monty liked working with characters. He didn't like actors. He didn't like acting. He wanted, he wanted some truth to happen in, in front of the camera. He just wanted truth to be, you know, to be presented. He wanted to be a, uh, a man who delivered truth to people to experience it on some primal unconscious level. She's not here. You sure? She always hears the car. She always comes out on the porch to wait for us. Shit, I forgot to pick up some butter. Something's not right. Since I helped secure the primary locations in Piru, I have to take the credit and the blame for everything that happened there. It was a very low budget movie. It was very difficult. Um, the problem with Piru was it was a very good friend of mine. It was their ranch, and Orange Ranch, Oranges and uh, Citrus Ranch. And uh, they were very troubled. They're a very troubled person, and they were very difficult. So that was unusual in the sense that uh, there was just a personality problem there that the primary person they were dealing with wasn't well, you know. And so that created problems. Otherwise, it was a super low budget movie and, um, you know, all the difficulties that ensue. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, Arthur and Monty and Laurie Post, the production person, production uh, art director, um, Monty and his team and Joseph Savit, the amazing cinematographer. They started working around that time together, Monty and, and Joseph. They were very clever in finding a location for the hospital. They're very clever in how to put together, you know, on a limited budget, the effects and, and the uh, special effects makeup and all that stuff. Monty was very proud of this movie, and you can go back 
and find the interviews where people thought he was a little bit cracked, you know? Like, how can he be so proud of such a disreputable thing? You know, is he just, you know, is, is he just lying or is he a fool or whatever? I'm telling you, he was very proud of his work. Um, Monty also viewed the work of the director in a very uh, utilitarian way. He felt like, you know, he knew what the job was. And so he was proud of the job he had done, just as he would look at Peckinpah or Don Siegel and he could see what they did as directors and point out why they were good directors or many of the famous celebrated directors he thought were crap. You know, he just said they're bad directors. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't know where to put the camera. They don't know how to work with actors. They have no ima visual imagination or whatever it was that was uh, his you know, uh, kind of hierarchy of how you do the job. He lived up to his own expectations of how to do the job on this. So he was very proud of what he'd done. You know, of course, if you make a movie called Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, uh, and you have any expectations for reviews, you must be hallucinating. There was never gonna be anything good critically to ever happen for this movie. And nothing critically good ever happened for this movie except Calle de Cinema thought it was fantastic. And uh, so, you know, there are a few Monty Hellman fans, uh, Brad Stevens here in the UK, um, you know, a few diehard fans who know the movie and like it and appreciate it. And it always shows up in retrospectives of Monty's work. But of course, uh, it is not on the critical radar at all. I'm not even sure it, it needs to be or should be. And for me personally, if I look at Monty's filmography, it's fairly far down. Um, I have, you know, the films that I like, um, and it's not in the top five. Um, I can't judge whether it's good or bad. It's just such an odd, funny, you know, it's an odd bird, you know. I would say Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 happened at a moment in the 80s uh, when my friend was starving and nobody wanted to hire him. And a friend called up, a friend named Arthur, and said, I've got food for you. You know, let's go, let's go do this. You have to do this work. It made life better for Monty. It helped Monty get through a tough patch. And uh, so it's almost like you remember it more, uh, you remember more the acts of friendship uh, than you remember the movie. Monty said, this is my Beauty and the Beast. And if people wanna come to it, and they wanna come with a sense of humor and a sense of adventure that a very bright man who once lived named Monty Hellman took this terrible, disreputable Santa Claus slasher genre and invested it with all the dignity and passion and love and expertise. He poured his soul into a Santa Claus slasher movie and you have a chance to see what the result is. You know, you have a chance to see what happens when a man takes something completely ridiculous, completely seriously, and, and you know, what is it? Is it good or bad? Who knows? But it's something to see.
you know, I'm, I'm one of those kind of lunch pail actors. They just say, you know, go over there, hit that mark. <laughs> so, okay, you know, I'm walking over with the blinking brain cap. Those are my grandchildren, Chris and Laura. That one's Laura. Pretty, isn't she? It's so funny, because a lot of times actors will think, well, I don't have any lines, so it's not really acting. Oh, it's so much acting, especially in the 80s, horror, and when you're the bad guy, uh, you're the monster. Uh, it's all about uh, the body. Very important. And, you know, ultimately, turkey soup. going in on a casting, I had uh, pretty short hair. Maybe my hair was still growing back from Chainsaw 2. I don't know. For some reason, I had short, short hair. And uh, we went up to uh, the Hollywood Hills to the home of Monty Hellman, who was the director of uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. And had I known more about Monty, <laughs> I probably would have, you know, I mean, since I've you know, come to love and revere Monty for the Cockfighter and, you know, Tulane Blacktop. I mean, he's done some amazing movies. He really is an American auteur. And, uh, you know, and that was the question was, why is he doing Silent Night, Deadly Night 3? And, you know, was it because he wanted to, you know, he thought that was a nice piece of Americana uh, that he would then exploit and kind of turn, you know, add some art artistry to it or something it must have attracted him to the project. Uh, I was just glad to get a job, and uh, at that time I had, you know, my then girl, my then pregnant girlfriend that I traveled across country with has, has now, fast forward, given birth, and so now I have a child and a girlfriend, uh, and I'm wondering, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm like, you know, hey Hollywood, hi, you know, and then it's like, what the hell, where am I? And uh, so that was, uh, you know, I was just glad to get the job as Ricky the Santa Claus Killer. And so, I, you know, I'm not so sure that was necessarily a flattering casting, but uh, nonetheless, okay, it's a, it's a job. And so I ended up, um, you know, and that was Joanna Ray was the casting person. Uh, so I ended up working with Samantha Scully, Joanna Ray's son, Eric, Eric Da Ray, uh, Robert Culp, who was kind of cool, Carlos Palomino, the former world welterweight boxing champion. <laughs> whom I kill, which of course is really unlikely. Um, and, uh, you know, for some reason, uh, you know, what I had was, I just remember having this um, amazing uh, brain cap, that's what I called it, which was, it looked like a kind of a, a, a clear plastic salad bowl on my head. It had some uh, blinking lights on the back, I guess in case I backed up or something. And it also had a rubber brain inside the plastic, the see-through salad bowl, this rubber brain and a bunch of orange liquid that swirled around as I moved my head. And I remember uh, they gave me a hospital gown uh, with my ass hanging out. And uh, they, I had like little paper slippers 
and the brain cap. And uh, Nina Kraft had, had given me kind of a flattened eye of some kind. And I remember, um, you know, in my little, you know, my little honey wagon, uh, above the mirror, I had written out in my own left-handed writing with a little bit of scotch tape, outshine the brain cap. Because, you know, when you're walking around with this really gorgeous, complicated piece of machinery on top of your head, you know, there goes your face. <laughs> so that was my big deal. My, my, you know, that was my motto to myself, outshine the brain cap. I was familiar with the controversy of the first and I guess second Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. I wasn't really that caught up in, you know, how, how dare they desecrate this religious holiday or whatever it was. But, um, I, you know, I, so I wasn't really that particularly interested in it, not to offend anybody who is, you know, deeply involved in Silent Night, Deadly Night in the franchise and the spirit behind it. But, you know, it didn't really bother me that much. Um, and then, uh, you know, but then getting the job was very exciting. I was very happy to get the job. She wants to penetrate his mind, see what he sees. I had been in a coma. It's revealed in the beginning of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 that I am still alive. <laughs> Hallelujah. And, uh, <laughs> and that thanks to some wizardry on the, on the surgical table, and this brain cap, you know, I'm, I'm kept alive. And then along comes Samantha Scully, who plays a blind girl with telepathic power. Somehow she and I connect in the telepathic world. And uh, somehow I realize, you know, uh, Ricky, I, Ricky, as I wake up, I realize that Samantha Scully is somewhere out there in Piru. Now, Piru is a little uh, town outside of Los Angeles, and uh, it's known for its uh, orange groves, or at least used to be until, you know, of course, they all got cut down, I suppose, for housing developments or whatever. But that was it, Piru. And, uh, and so I wake up, and my mission is, you know, go find Samantha Scully in Piru. The next thing I know is I'm standing on some freeway where I'm thumbing a ride. And uh, as I'm thumbing a ride, Carlos Palomino stops. And why does Carlos Palomino stop? Maybe he has sympathy for me. He looks out and he sees a guy with a, a blinking brain cap. <laughs> you know, frankly, I wouldn't have stopped. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he pulls over. So I get in the truck, uh, his, tr his pickup truck, and uh, I end up killing him. I kill Carlos Palomino. Not only do I kill him, but I take his uh, windbreaker and his stocking cap. And now I show up in, in Piru at a wonderful old lady's house, played by Elizabeth Hoffman, and I'm standing there at the door of her house. Now, why am I at her house? Because she is the grandmother of Samantha Scully. So, you know, because that's what's led me to that particular house. And, uh, and she, uh, Elizabeth Hoffman, says, um, please come in, you look like you're uh, homeless and hungry, or something to that effect. And uh, so I kind of walk in, I'm, I'm you know, I'm nonverbal. So, you know, I kind of come in and she leads me into the, uh, to the dining room of her little cozy house. And she comes back with a bowl of warm turkey soup. Now, go ahead, eat. It's nice and hot, good for you. 
At that point in my career, I was uh, terrified of having to cry. You know, some people are afraid of, you know, having to do one thing on screen, like something they just couldn't do or can't imagine themselves doing. And for me, it was uh, crying. And I'm good at killing and, you know, being funny, but crying, like you know, having a, a tender moment with water coming out of my eyes was just, I, I thought, it'll never happen. And um, anyway, so Elizabeth Hoffman sits me down and, uh, and I'm there with the blinking brain cap, the camera crew, of course, you know, this is on film. And there's Elizabeth Hoffman, she's just smiling and beaming. You don't have to thank me. And I'm having this soup and there's so much love in that moment. And I started to cry. And, you know, I was like here and, you know, and, and all of a sudden tears are welling up in my eyes and they started to fall down my cheeks as I'm taking that soup and looking at her smiling face. And I hear very sotto voce, I hear, I hear Monty go, and cut. And I'm like, what, what is this? What is this water on my face? And then the crew very quietly starts to applaud. And I realize what has happened. And I just think, this is the weirdest fucking moment of my life. <laughs> and there it was, man. I was crying in Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Ricky, you know, and this wonderful woman who I later, of course, kill. And <laughs> it was amazing. It was really, it was a breakthrough for me. And I've, I've since cried in other movies. And, uh, but that was really what broke the ice for me, or, you know, the tear barrier. Hello, Ricky. It's Dr. Newberry. I do remember there's a scene where Richard Beamer, uh, again, Tony from West Side Story, Richard Beamer is uh, some kind of a doctor and he's trying to kind of get me back into the van to take me back to the hospital or something. And uh, Ricky somehow has a knife. I can't remember where it came from, but I, you know, I stab Richard Beamer in the gut. It was interesting because um, I, you know, as an actor, I don't really like to hurt people on the set. That's just me, maybe, uh, you know. I mean, I figure, you know, if you, if you die declaiming Shakespeare, that's, that's profound. But if you, if you get hurt on the set, it's, it's fucked up, you know, is basically the way I look at it. So, uh, and I remember Richard Beamer, you know, and I, I stabbed him, probably I'm sure it was a retractable knife, uh, but I, I stab him and, uh, and he goes, you know, in, in a cut, you know, we had that and he goes like, no, really, I mean, really, just really stab me. And I, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't really want to. Because what I did was I, you know, I stabbed him and then I like, you know, you know opened up his rib cage kind of thing. And, uh, and I guess he really needed a real, you know, good punch in the gut. So, you know, I was happy to oblige him, but, you know, I don't really like doing that stuff. But I, I do remember another story, and that was one night uh, we were shooting a scene where Samantha is now blind girl down hiding in the basement of the house of the old lady who made the turkey soup. And my job is to, now I'm, now Ricky, it's Ricky the stalker. I'm coming slowly down the stairs to try to find Samantha Scully. And uh, they were happy to have me go. 
they said, okay, well, Bill, you can, you know, you can go home. I mean, we'll wrap you because all it, all it is is we'll just get a PA to put the slippers on and walk down the stairs. And I said, no way, because, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you're into like oh, horror movies like I am or maybe any movie, uh, you know, that there are important things that could easily get overlooked by people that aren't so into it. And for me, the stalking feet of Ricky coming down the stairs was really important. And I, I didn't want somebody that wasn't necessarily into it to uh, walk down those stairs. You know, there's a real, there's, there's an art to it. There's a, there's a love in the stalking feet, just the feet coming down the stairs, you know, and then cut to the girl going, <laughs> and the feet are coming. And that, that I remember, that was my, one of my proudest moments was the stalking feet. I do remember that actually, uh, I think our producer was Arthur Gorson. And he, had, he had an accountant. And uh, I guess the accountant wanted to be in the movie. And so uh, Arthur uh, hired him as one of the two uh, uh, EMT guys that, that come and, and cart me off at the end of the movie. And his accountant, you know, was terrified. So uh, what happened was that uh, they got me up on the, on the gurney, I'm dead, I, you know, my head's on the, you know, on the gurney or whatever, and they, and they slide it over to the, um, uh, to the ambulance, but they rammed, they fucking rammed me into the ambulance, like really bang my head, you know, and, and it's like, you know, it's because the guy was like, you know, doing one of those things. And that was, that was, I remember that was a little unpleasant. You know, I do a lot of conventions and I don't really encounter too many Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 fans. Occasionally uh, they, they come in with a poster or a, or a VHS cover uh, to sign. No one is normal. I'm happy that, uh, that it was a part that, uh, that other, other actors could play. I'm always happy when actors get work. I think I'm probably the only Ricky that, that had that brain cap. So, <laughs> you know, there's certainly that to, to hang on to. But um, to me, it'll always be, um, you know, those, those tears over that hot turkey soup as, as Elizabeth Hoffman hovers over me with her, you know, her Christmas warmth. And a happy new year.